Let me read the text and then I will pray. We're, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through chapter 2, verse 18. But this morning, we're only going to look at verses 5 through 9 of chapter 2. Verse 5 of chapter 2. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, of the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not see yet all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Lord, we continue to worship you, to exalt you, and we do admit and confess of joy, Lord, we are saved and kept by grace. Even this text talks about that Christ tasted death for everyone by the grace of God. And we now pray that as we come to your word of grace, that you, by your grace, Lord, open up our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, and that seeing those things, Lord, we would be transformed. May you be exalted in the preaching, in the listening, and the obeying of your word, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. I think today, if I eavesdropped correctly, I was eavesdropping, and I heard that James today is flying. Is that I think so. Well, it happens to agree, coincide with my introduction because my dad was a pilot. My dad had a Bonanza airplane where the tail is shaped like this. And we would get in it when I was very small. And we would fly from Orlando, Florida to Georgia and land in the country on clay roads. So as I grew up, I always wanted to fly. I always wanted to be a pilot. Read lots of books and magazines. Never had the opportunity. And so I thought... Maybe up here, I could take some flying lessons. But first, I wanted to fly in a small airplane, because I hadn't flown in a small airplane since I was just maybe five years old. So my neighbor, some years ago, my neighbor who worked for Boeing had a small airplane at the airport on Meridian and Puyallup. Have you been by that airport? He had an airplane there. And so we flew in it. My kids and I and Lisa. And after flying one time in that airplane, I decided I never wanted to be a pilot. It was nerve-wracking. Not not to fly, but to be the pilot. I, I could barely talk to him. The entire time, he was talking on the radio to other people. He was pressing all kinds of buttons, all kinds of things. And I was, hey, let's go fly around my Mount Rainier. Let's do it. Let's go for it. And he was, no, you know, we really can't do that because... To do that, we would have to fly over this way and we would have to go across the 
U.S. Air Force zone, and you really can't wander and enter their zone. You can't drift over there because you could get in bad trouble. Okay, well then, let's go fly out over the sound, and let's go this way, and... You can do that, but to get that way, you can't just necessarily fly straight to the sound because that's where the airliners come in. They, they have a pathway they fly in. So you have to fly at a certain level, a certain height, a certain speed, a certain direction, and go here and, and go there. And the whole time, we're going up and down and this way and this way, and there's no traffic controller, I don't think, right at that airport. So you kind of self-manage. Everybody self-manages everybody else. And he's looking around, and there is these different zones that you just can't drift into and just casually just take your eyes off. I was hoping for me to be a pilot. You know, I just wanted to get in the airplane and just fly. Hey, let's go to Mount Rainier. Let's zoom around, say, you know, Mount St. Helens. Apparently... At least this side of Washington, you can't do that. You can't just get in and just kind of coast or drift wherever you want to. If if I was flying and just decided, you know, if my friend's name was Mike, and if it was like, Tom, you take over, I would just fly straight to Mount Rainier. But if I did that, I could drift maybe into a no-fly zone that the U.S. Air Force was watching, and what could happen? Maybe I could get shot down. It would be a disaster. So all that to say that though in a certain way drifting could be fun, drifting can be also what? Dangerous. And that is the main theme of this section. That the main imperative and really the only imperative is here in chapter 2. Verse 1, where it says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. And apparently the issue was that these beloved people that were professing Christ, and some were saved and some were not saved, some were being tempted to walk away from the Lord, Apparently, it was because of this preoccupation with angels. The book of Hebrews starts. And this first section is all about angels. You can see in chapter 1, verse 4, and all the way into chapter 2, it's talking about angels. There was, in Second Temple Judaism, by which these beloved people had been saved from or associated with, there would be a system, maybe not of angel worship, but a, a preoccupation with angels. Maybe for to, to help in salvation, to help in sanctification, to help protect you, there would be a, a heavy reliance upon Michael or Gabriel, and there were even other angel names that they had. And these beloved people were being pressured to, you know what, you've placed your faith in Christ, you've pursued Christ, now your friends are in prison, you went and visited your friends, and now people have taken all your possessions. Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 was written to say, have have faith in Christ. Even though times are very difficult, have faith in Christ. Keep pressing on. Apparently there was this pressure that was upon this church to, you know what, you came to faith in Christ and it's not going that well. 
Maybe you need to go back to your former religion, which could have involved, which seems to have involved this preoccupation with angels. Now, we don't, I don't think most of us have a preoccupation with angels. I, I don't think, I hope you don't. I'm pretty sure you don't. Uh, pray to angels, you, you pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the, this section specifically is saying that Jesus is better than angels, chapter 1, because he's fully God, and he's better than angels because he's fully human. And so, focus this deliberate, diligent focus of your mind and heart on Jesus Christ. He's greater than angels because he created them, and he created the whole universe, and he's better and greater than angels because, in a sense, he became lower than them. And he did what angels did not do and could not do. Therefore, focus on Christ. Now, as I said, you and I don't have a problem necessarily with a preoccupation with angels, but the issue is this extra-biblical tradition. Second Temple Judaism, which most likely would have been the religion that these beloved people have been delivered from, this church, their previous history would have been associated with that in some way. We, we don't do that, but we might have extra-biblical tradition that we can be tempted to follow. So you have to ask and answer the question, what is your biblical, your extra-biblical, outside the Bible, religious tradition that maybe pulls on you that, you know, you, you have to do this in order to be right with God. Perhaps it's you have to have a King James Bible. Perhaps it's you can't use the NIV. Whatever that tradition might be. Perhaps it's something... Now, I had a, a dear relative that had to go to Mass. He had to go to Catholic Mass. He could not miss Catholic Mass. If he did, then his salvation could be possibly forfeited. What is your extra-biblical tradition? Perhaps it's, I will never let alcohol touch my lips, ever. Well, that's not a, a bad idea, but it's not necessarily a righteous idea that sanctifies you. That might be your extra-biblical religious tradition. That might be your preference, but it's not a biblical precept. So you have to determine what is your extra-biblical extra tradition that you could, in a sense, enshrine as a taboo or a refuge that you hide in instead of in Christ. And then what happens, well, once we do that, we can have many preferences. And having a preference is not bad, but we can take a preference and we can make it almost a biblical precept and we can hide in there. But then after time, we've drifted away from Christ. We're not worshiping and following Christ, taking refuge in Christ. We're taking refuge in a, a almost a shrine that we ourselves have built. And that's what the Hebrews here were being tempted to do. But the Spirit of God writes them and says, stick with Christ, have this diligent, deliberate focus on Jesus, and don't drift away from him because he's fully God and he's fully human. 
And we've said that there are these focus adjustments that we need to make so we can focus on him. We've looked at three of them, and then this morning we're going to start the fourth one. And the fourth adjustment focus is focus on Jesus as fully human, verses 5 through 9, but fully human for you. Focus on Jesus as a God better than angels. We saw that in chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, 5 through 18, really, I should say, 5 through 18, focus on Jesus as fully human, but fully human for you. That's why verse 18 says, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Why? Because he himself was tempted. Because he himself became a real human. Verse 14, he partook of the flesh and blood uh, of a real human. He came in flesh and blood. He even, it says in verse 9, that he might taste death. He can only die if he was human. Verse 9, again, the suffering of death. Don't drift away from the gospel and from Jesus. Why? Because of his full humanity. He did what no angel could ever do. Now, in our passage, first in verses 5 through 9, this is stated briefly. And so we're going to look at that this morning. It's stated briefly. And then verses 10 through 18 is elaborated beautifully. 5 through 9 is stated briefly. That is that Jesus is fully human for you. And then 10 through 18 is elaborated on that in a beautiful way. Briefly stated, elaborated beautifully. So first this morning then, it's stated briefly that Jesus is fully human. And the point of this section, really in verses 5 through 9, is where you and I as humans failed in our God-given responsibility, Jesus Christ succeeded. Where you and I were Adam, the first Adam failed in his duty as being an image bearer of God, the second Adam, Jesus, succeeded in a wonderful way. Now, first, it's stated, you can see this in verse 5, it's stated that angels aren't in charge of the earth. Look at verse 5. For he, that is God, didn't give control of the world to come to angels. And angels here is emphatic. What that means is, in the Greek text, angels is placed in a certain place in the sentence, which makes it stand out, which makes it very prominent. So if somebody was reading this, or if somebody was hearing this, and they had a knowledge of normal Greek speaking of that day, they would almost hear it in this in this way, for he did not subject to angels the world to come. It's emphasizing, just this, again, that this section is about these elite spiritual beings. Now, when you look at verse 5, it is interesting because it says, the world to come. 
There are some commentators that take this to mean the, the eschaton, the future, the, the coming age of the new heaven and the new earth. There are some commentaries that take that to be the interpretation, but I, I don't think that's the best interpretation. But rather, this is talking about creation, original creation of the original universe, especially in context from verses Chapter 1, verses 10 to 13, he's just talked about the Lord creating the earth. (coughs) Excuse me. And so, the text really is looking at the idea, the timing of God making the foundations of the earth, and even Christ making the foundations of the earth, creating the whole universe. And at that time, when he created the world, angels were not put in charge. They weren't put in charge of the earth. Who was put in charge of the earth? Mankind was, not angels. So you you can see here in this verse then that the Holy Spirit is saying to these beloved people, you're being preoccupied and putting so much honor and glory on angels and seeking their intervention and control over the world when actually the ones that were originally placed to control over the world was who? You, mankind. Humans. Now, if you remember, (coughs) if you remember, what happened? Now there's, back to Genesis chapters 1 through 3, part of the sin of of Adam and Eve was what? They didn't trust God, but who did they trust instead? Satan. And Satan was a fallen angel. So God had given control to man, to Adam and Eve, but yet, in a sense, they gave up that control to an angel, to a fallen angel. And that is, in a sense, too, part of, of why verses 6 and 7 is quoting Psalm 8. Going back to the original purpose, purpose of why God created mankind and, and how he created him and, and for what reason he created him. It's very interesting, but also instructive, I think, for us to understand that Back to chapter 1, verse 14. Angels are ministering spirits, and they do have, outside of ourselves, no, not in ourselves, certainly we have the power of Christ, but angels, when you look at them in Scripture, the cherubim, the seraphim, Michael and Gabriel, right, Isaiah and other places, they have tremendous power. But the earth was given to mankind to, to govern and to manage. Not to angels. Now to give proof of this, look at verse 6. To give proof to this, it's a very, another interesting statement, but one has testified somewhere. Now, who is the, the author of the book of Hebrews? We don't know, but the divine author, we know, that's God. So the Spirit of God... Is the Spirit of God ignorant on who wrote Psalm 8? Verse 6 is quoting Psalm 8, 
but it says, but one has testified somewhere. Have you ever had a time in your life when you've quoted a verse, but you've forgotten the reference? And been like, oh, I forgot where it says this. Do you think the Spirit of God has forgotten the reference? Is the Spirit of God forgetting, oh, that's right, I forgot, I wrote Psalm, Psalm 8. No. Well, then why, why is this here, and why is it stated this way? But one has testified somewhere. Is it just ad hoc? Is it there for no reason? I think it's purposeful, and the Spirit of God, through the human author, is being tongue-in-cheek and making it very prominent that the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, which you love, says this about humans. It's a way, not to be funny, but to make a point that I think... Maybe you've said this or somebody has talked to you in this way. I Maybe your kids, you know, maybe they can't find their toothbrush. You know, I, maybe you left your toothbrush by the sink. Maybe. And that's the way to say you're, it's where you last placed it. And I think that, in a sense, is what's happening in verse 6. One, hmm, who could it be? Somebody somewhere in some place <clears throat> said this about mankind. In other words, it's something that these people, this church, should have known and probably knew, but they needed to apply it to what they knew. And we all have to do that with Scripture. And I think that that is one of the points is, and he's quoted so much from the Old Testament, right, from chapter 1, verse 5 and on, and even he will throughout the book of Hebrews is... This is truth that you know of, and you should know it, and you should know it and apply it to your life. Then what is this proof that he's giving? Well, well, look at verse 6, and he's quoting Psalm 8. What is man that you would remember him, or the son of man? Son of man just means the, the children of mankind. Mankind and mankind's children. What, what is it that God would think of him and and be kind to him, and be gracious, and consider that. What is, who is man that God would be so loving, patient, and kind, and considerate? It's talking about really two things, the greatness of God, and even underneath God, the greatness of man, compared to all the other animals and angels. And we know from Genesis 1, 26 and on, man was made in the image of God and not angels. God is more concerned about mankind, and God remembers mankind more than angels. Why? Because God made man in his image. The angels that fell, did God provide them a savior? The angels that fell, did God seek to redeem them? No. But mankind, he did and he has. But not angels. That's what verse 6 is saying. What is so different about mankind that God would, in essence, humble himself to come to earth to seek and to save them when he didn't do that for angel kind? 
What is it about man? And then verse 7 is going to elaborate that and, and answer this. And basically, it's we're created in the image of God. Mankind is a moral representative of God. Look at verse 7. You, that is God, have made him, <clears throat> mankind, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. That is, and you can turn briefly to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and on, and we looked at this uh, a couple of year, years ago, is that God created mankind to be a type of a living, intelligent, responsible model of God. A type of a masterpiece of artwork that is intelligent, alive, and responsible, that can communicate. A model that is to represent and to reflect all that God is. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, that is, an image of the Trinity, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, an image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And you can read even further down, all the way to the end of the chapter. So God created mankind, both male and female, to reflect God and even to rule over the earth. To be these living, intelligent, communicative, responsible, art masterpieces of all that, that God is. However, mortal. Mortal. Angels are, in terms of their original creation, right, they are immortal. And I think that's what it means in Psalm 8, which Hebrews 2 was quoting, which says, you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. I mean, angels don't die physically. We, we die physically. Because, and, and that mysterious, wise providence of God being part of his story, Adam and Eve fell into sin, chose to rebel against God. Now, we are all under the curse. The wages of sin is death. We can be redeemed from final death. But all of us, unless Christ comes back, one day we will pass away. We'll die. We'll have to cross that river of death. But not... Not an angel. And so in that sense, we've been made lower. We, we don't have that, that power that they have. We can't see the, the invisible things of God yet like they can. But they were not made in the image of God like we are. And that's why here in verse 7 it says, You have crowned him of glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. They were not given the earth to be stewards of. They do operate here, as we see in Daniel 9 and Ephesians 6, both 
fallen and unfallen holy angels, they can and do operate in, in this environment and this sphere. But God did not, did not originally give them their earth and say, be stewards over it and you are my image bearers. No, he said that to mankind. And even verse 8, where it says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. If you go back and read Genesis 1, 26 to 30, it talks about how the whole earth, it's all underneath the rule of mankind. And then at the end of verse 8 in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, for in subjecting all things to him, Using the singular for mankind, he left nothing that is not subject to subject to him. And I think that's summarizing Genesis 1, 26 to 30. But then it says, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And I, I don't think this him in verse 8, or even under his feet, is talking about Christ primarily verse 9 is making the transition to Christ but verses 6 to 8 is saying that man was created by God to be a ruler over the earth and to represent God to be a holy ambassador of God however because of sin and this is all in the plan of God that didn't happen And so that work that man was supposed to do has not been fulfilled. And so that's why it says, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now, we don't see this happening. Not all things are under man's control. And then verse, that's verse 8, then verse 9 says, but, and, and this is where I think it's so beautiful, but we see Jesus. But we do see him namely Jesus. And even note it says, through death has glory and honor. So mankind was created to to model God, to represent God, to be ambassadors of God on this this earth in, in a holy and righteous way to subdue the earth. But rather, in a sense, Adam and Eve gave that up and gave that rulership, in a sense, to Satan because they listened to him. And so that glory and honor that man was created in and be in the image of God, not destroyed, but it was damaged. But now Christ, through death, has the glory and has the honor. And so that's why we say where mankind failed, who succeeded? Jesus. So Jesus is similar to man, but different. God the Son took on human flesh, took on real flesh and and blood, became part of mankind. And so even Jesus, as the God-man, his human self made in the image of God, did what he was created to do. I'm talking about his, his humanity. And that is, was a perfect representative of God. So Jesus is similar to us. Look at verse 9. For a little while lower than the angels. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. 
Jesus is similar to us, but different. Now, stop here and let me point something out that, that, that might help. Not, not to create confusion, but I hope to help. If you look at verse 9, in my Bible, New American Standard, it says, but we, de- we do see him. There is no him in this verse. The Greek word for him would be altuar. You could say altan, A-U-T-O-N. But it's not in this verse. They should have put the him in italics. It's not there. You do have the name Jesus, and this is the first time the name Jesus is used in the book of Hebrews. So this him could create some confusion. The main verb, however, that's here, as you see in the New American Standard, but we do see that verb is actually in the Greek, it's right beside the word Jesus. So the Greek would be, but the one that was made a little bit lower than the angels, we see Jesus. That one that was made a little bit lower than the angels, we see Jesus. And verse 9 where it says, who was made for a little while lower than angels, is basically an adjective. It's a participial phrase. So in a sense, you could, you could write it this way. But we see Jesus, the one that was made a little bit lower than angels because of his death, was crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's how it could be, I think, even translated. Again, there is no him that's there. It's rather a but. We see. It's not an imperative. It's rather an indicative statement. And, it's, and the but is not a sharp contrast, but it's a, a type of Greek word for small, very small, adversative, but more of development. Man, made an image of God, crowned with glory and honor, given the reins of the earth, and they gave it up. And so though all things have been given to them on the earth to rule, it's not going that way now. However... As the plan of God went on, we see Jesus. The one also that was made a little bit lower than the angels. But he got the glory and he got the honor. He chose to die and taste the death for everyone. That's verse 9. That's what verse 9 is saying. That there is a new development. And that is God the Son. Because this whole previous section in chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, has been saying that God the Son, the one that sat down at the right hand of the Father on high after he made purification for all the sins of the people, that one himself is Yahweh, is God, is the creator of the universe. And his years have not come to an end. The whole universe could be rolled up, verse 12 of chapter 1. But not the Son of God. And then in verse 9 it says, But we see Jesus, the one that made the angels, became lower than the angels. 
That's what he's just said in chapter 1, verses 5 through 13, is Jesus Christ, God the Son, made the whole universe, including angels, and the whole universe is going to be underneath his reign. He himself became a human, and he himself, for a little while, has placed himself, in a sense, being in a mortal body, lower than the angels. That is humility, and that is grace. And that's our Messiah. And it's really the wisdom of the Spirit of God communicating to this congregation and a saying, don't drift away from Christ because he's fully God and he's fully human. He's similar, he's more, Jesus Christ, is he more similar to Michael and Gabriel and the cherubim and the seraphim or to you? Who is Jesus more like? You are the angels. He's more like you. Without the sin, Hebrews 4, verse 15. But that's the point of this section, is that the Spirit of God is saying, Jesus Christ is more like you than he is like angels. And that's incredible. Think of the verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law cannot do, weak as it was through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness, not in, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that's an offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. Or think of Philippians chapter 2. Verses 6 through 8. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance, he humbled himself. Those other verses are basically saying the same thing that verse 9 is saying, just in a different way and emphasizing different things. Note also in verse 9, what it says here, and this is where it's different, one of the ways it's different, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, Adam and Eve chose not to listen to God, and what happened? God told them, if you disobey and if you partake of this one tree, you will what? You would die. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the, the perfect Adam, obeyed God and willingly and even gladly for the joy set before him that Hebrews later would say, died. He didn't die because he sinned. He died because he obeyed. And through that obedient sacrificial death was even awarded more glory and more honor, which is what we see in Philippians 2 verse 11. So this verse is amazing, and it's wonderful. Could an angel do this? Could an angel give up his life and be willing to die for mankind? And in such a way that they get the glory and the honor and, and the praise? 
we can read in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5 and elsewhere in that book, where the angels are worshiping Christ because the lamb that was slain has redeemed his bride. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come is what the angels sing. And that is the glory and the honor that Jesus achieved because though man failed to listen to God, God the Son obeyed God even when it meant laying down his life. And so we give him the glory and honor that he rightly deserves. So Jesus is like us in a sense, and even verses 9 through 18 will elaborate on this. He came in flesh and blood, and he came in a mortal life. The Son of God put on mortality. The one that always existed put on real human flesh. And, and his humanity could die. No angel did that, but God the Son did that. So he's like us in a sense of his humanity, different from us in the sense that he 100% obeyed God even to the point of death. Now, also, note that very last phrase, that this last Section of verse 9. Death for everyone. And really the, the whole statement. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There is so much that is in here. And so much that is in this last phrase, death for everyone. That we'll look at the specifics of that next week and, and the weeks to follow. Because it deals with... Particular atonement, definite atonement, particular redemption. I, I probably, I, I would prefer the phrase effective atonement. But before we look into that, and we'll look into the nuances of that next week as we go through this section, but we can at least say, say this. By the grace of God, by God's Willingness to, to love, to powerfully love, and to give a, a great gift to people that didn't deserve it. He gave himself in a, in, a, in a sacrificial death. That's the main point of this passage that he's saying to these beloved people, this church, is that Jesus did what an angel could never ever do. And that is... Not because we deserve it, but out of the grace of God, become a substitutional sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And when it says taste, sometimes we can get maybe a wrong idea. If I ask you, would you taste this piece of chicken that I barbecued? You might go, okay, okay. Oh, it needs more salt. It needs more sauce. Uh, it's it's overdone. That's not the idea of taste here, or even in the Bible. The idea usually of taste is like Psalm thirty-four, uh, eight. Oh, taste and see that God is good. It's not. Oh, okay. No, it's you really experience it. It's more of the idea of you're going to like drink the whole cup. You're, you're going to really go for it. Ah, uh, yeah. You're going to indulge yourself is really the idea. 
And so here, when it's speaking of, of Christ, of the Son of God, the, the main point of, of this verse is Jesus Christ became so human that he died. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became so human that he died. So that anybody who wants to be saved, anybody who wants to be saved can say, Jesus, save me, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, please forgive me. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, next week we'll talk about this phrase, death for everyone. But don't lose the the main point right now in this text. is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did what an angel could and never would do, and that is die on the cross for those that actually hated him or didn't like him, right? But God demonstrates his own love for us, but yet we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so there was this extra-biblical tradition that these beloved people were being tempted to follow and to back away from Christ. You know, I've been following Christ, but... Life has gotten harder. Have you become a Christian and has life gotten easier or harder? It could even get harder in the years ahead. I hope not, but it could. For these people here that were professing Christ, they had come to Christ, and in many ways, life didn't get better. It got harder. What do you do? When you come to Jesus, you get saved. And in many countries, and many states in India, and the Middle East, and China, other places, when you confess Christ, things may not necessarily go easier. It didn't go easier, apparently, for these believers. Again, that's why you have Hebrews chapter 11, which says we walk by faith and not by sight. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 11 I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1, is all about that we live by faith, not in things that we see, but we have this settled conviction and hope in God and his promises. Just like Abraham, all the way through to David, all the way all the way down throughout the whole Old Testament, they walked by faith. Well, we have faith in Jesus. Because again, verse 9 says, right in the middle, you have we See Jesus. That's how the Greek text has. But we see Jesus. Man failed. I fail. Every person in this room fails to obey God. But we see Jesus who has not failed. And though he did not necessarily have to die because he lacked something, he voluntarily and gladly and joyful with the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, just with a few minutes then that we have left, we do want to give some application. So we've stated the angels were not given control of the earth. We've said that there's specific biblical proof that's given, that proof was given. We've seen that Jesus, he's like us, you know, flesh and blood. If Jesus was hammering and something happened and he was cut, there wouldn't have been necessarily this glow that came out of his finger. Right? When, when he was nailed on the cross, what happened? Did, did light come out uh, out of his skin? 
Maybe it could have, because he's God. But what happened was that he actually bled. And Jesus got hungry and he got tired. We'll talk about that in the verses to follow. But he's unlike us and that he never sinned and he chose to die. And he got glory and honor because of his perfect obedience. Now, understanding that then, just briefly, some changes that we can make in our own lives, some ways that we can think and act differently. First, walk humbly where we failed, Christ succeeded. Where we failed, Christ succeeded. Right? We were created to, to model God, to have a type of responsibilities, ruling, serving, ruling, managing, uh, stewarding in our own life, and to representing, reflecting God's kindness, His holiness, all of His attributes, and all that we do. So in, in all of my different relationships, as a father, as a husband, as a father, as a neighbor, as a pastor, as a friend, as a son, as an uncle, as a nephew, I need to be an ambassador of God, reflecting God and Christ by the choices I make and how I respond. Do I succeed in that? I can look down on Adam and Eve. How could they do such a horrible thing? But the reality is, none of us are perfect models of God except for who? Except for Christ. Only Jesus. So I should, you should be humble. Uh, Micah 6, 8, 6, 8, we walk humbly before our God. That is, I, I don't have anything that I can lift up to God and say, look at the, at the great way, Lord, that I've modeled you. Only Christ can do that. And so we want to have this humility in our life where we're less preoccupied with how great we are so our minds aren't constantly thinking about ourselves. Remember, we've talked about humility. Thinking less about yourself is not necessarily thinking less about your nature, but you're thinking less cognitively about who you are. That is, throughout the day, your mind isn't, your thoughts aren't going to me, 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 me. But rather your mind and your heart begins to think about God and others, God and others, God and others, God and others, God and others. That's really this, this humility. So we walk humbly and humility is such a Essential ingredient for any healthy relationship. It has to be sprinkled and fertilized with this humility. Which comes really from verse 9. Verse 9 doesn't say, but we see Tom. But we see, and you can fill in your name. But we see the husband. But we see the wife. But we see the kids. But we see this pastoral hero. No, we see Jesus. We see Jesus. Second, out of this humility comes then a, a second application that we can make from this text. And that is that we boast in grace. We don't boast in our own grit. Boast in grace. Don't boast in your grit, that is, in your religious effort. Look back at verse 9 where it says, By the grace of God, he would... 
experience death for everyone. It wasn't that the Lord looked down on you and I and said, Tom is so worthy. Man, when I look at all the people on earth, I'm motivated by him to die for him because he's such a good boy. That's not true. It's not your obedience or my obedience that moves the heart of God to send his son to be a sacrificial death, to taste death on the cross. But rather, it was, it was not you and I. It wasn't our grit. It wasn't our determination. It was the grace of God. God's love. God's mercy. That was, I want to give something, a gift, to these people that they don't deserve. That loyal, undeserved love and mercy of choice. This grace of God. It's incredible. And so we exult in God. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, 3, that he exults in Christ. For by grace we're saved through faith. This not of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're saved by God's grace. And so we don't boast in ourselves. Have you ever, not to be too graphic, but have you ever, I hope you don't do this, you know, you're washing the dishes, what would happen if your wedding, your wedding ring fell off and went into the, the drain that has the chopper? I gotta get that ring. So, it's on, so you stick your hand in there. Ow! I, you know what? I, I have to get it. And so you stick your hand in there again. What's gonna happen? You keep doing that, you're not gonna have any fingers left. Right? That would just be dumb. But the truth is, when we boast, what are we doing? You're grinding your own self down. You're hurting yourself. When, when we boast about who we are, it's like we're so dumb that we're sticking our hand into a garbage disposal that's chopping things up. Boasting and self-grit grinds you up. And so hopefully that image can stick with you. When you boast, it's not good. You can't boast in works that you've done to please God because it's only by His grace and His mercy. And so we boast in God's grace. Not an extra biblical tradition or things that we've done or in our determination. What moved God to die for us? His grace, His mercy, His love. Even His humility. And then finally, go to Christ about your struggles. Go to Christ about your struggles. And Hebrews chapter 2, following will talk about this. Hebrews chapter 4 will talk about this. But we can see it right here in verse 9. Is that the Son of God, that eternal Son of God, chapter 1 says that all things were made through Him, and He causes all things to be held together. But yet, for you and for I, this text says He died. And, and not just in a abstract way, and I think that's why the word taste is used here. It's not just that, yeah, Christ died for me, for God so loved the world that He gave us and begotten. Son who believes in God, I have everlasting life. You know, so we say John three sixteen super fast. Christ died. But it has the word taste here, I think, to give us the idea that it's not just that God died. God, the man, 
the Son of God. It's that he tasted, meaning he really, really, truly experienced death. Because there were people, there were false teachers that said early on in the church that Christ didn't really die. The, the, you know, he, the deity of God, the, the, the deity of Christ left, you know. It was like a half death. It wasn't a true death. No, this is verses saying that Christ, the Son of God, as mysterious as it is, actually died. The Messiah died. So then, in context of the whole book of Hebrews, and especially chapter 2, verse 18, he's able to come to the aid of all those who are tempted. Whatever that you struggle with, whatever fear, whatever trial that is really heavy upon you, there are times when we can think, Christ, he doesn't understand. He's God. He's not human. <gasps> no, he is. Have you ever thought that? Jesus, God, you can't understand because you're not human. Actually, Jesus Christ is still human today. Isn't that crazy in a wonderful sense? So even if you're afraid of death, which later this chapter, verse 14, will talk about, you can go to the Lord because he died. And before he died, remember, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was weeping and crying to the point of death it talks about. And even when Lazarus died, what did Jesus do? He wept. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we can think that Jesus Christ, being being God, being sinless, being Yahweh, being the creator of everything, and no way can understand us. But I think Scripture would say that Jesus Christ understands you and what you're going through better than you understand you and what you are going through. Truly. He knows things about you that you don't even know. Because you even misunderstood yourself. Aren't there times when you misunderstand your own self? You don't even know what you want at times, or why you did certain things. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows what people have done to you, what people didn't do for you, what's going to happen in the future. He knows all of your successes, all of your failures, and he still loves you, and he's still with you. And he's experienced something himself that you, yet yourself, have not experienced. And that is he died. He knows what it's like to die. And to be lonely. And to be rejected. Even by his family. And even by the religious leaders. And even by the nation. And even by his disciples and his friends. And that's all epitomized, I think, by this idea, this truth in verse 9, he tasted death for you. It's incredible. So then this passage then, as it's briefly stated, is saying, don't drift away into all these other ideas about how to live the Christian life. Rather, stay focused on Jesus because he's fully God and he's fully man. Now, I mentioned... we. I was flying with my friend, my my neighbor. And we flew all around 
I think it was for 15 minutes. We didn't fly very far. But when we came in for a landing, how did he land? I mean, you know, have you ever landed at the airport in Puyallup? It's a dinky airport. I mean, it's small. It's smaller, smaller than the Herndon Airport in Orlando. You have no idea what I'm talking about. It's a small airport in Orlando. Small, small airport. The airport in Meridian is so small, there's no tower, I don't think, right? There, there, there's no, how do you even know? How do, there's no controller saying, don't take, take, take one way, 45, 6. There, there's no controller. And so I was asking him, can't we just land anyway? And no, all the different pilots are talking to each other, and there's a certain path, and there's a certain trajectory that you have to take when you land a plane. Same with all these planes that land. And if most of the time, if a plan, if the pilot and the plane decide, you know what, we're going to do our own way, we're going to do our own thing, and you know what, Mike and I, the, the pilot I was with, we just start talking when he's landing the airplane, and he starts to drift a little bit, I mean, really drift, what could happen? There can be airplanes here, here, and there. We could miss the runway. We could hit a, a, an oil tanker off the side. We could hit a car. We could land on the grass. We could die. Other people could die. It could be a disaster. So whether you, you start an airplane, whether you're flying around, or even when you're coming to the end, maybe the end of your life, when you're getting ready to land and, and come in, do you just go like, you know what? I'm going to do it blindfolded. I'm, I'm just going to trust God and just drift. I already did my time flying. I flew by the rules. But now, when I come in, I'm just going to drift and take it easy. No, that would be a disaster. Same thing with Christ. Beginning, middle, and the end, we have this deliberate, diligent focus on Jesus. Because he's like us, and yet not like us. He's better than us. And better than the angels. Lord, we thank you for your word. Use this word to transform us, to encourage us, and to convict us, Lord. We praise you. We give it a glory. We thank you. Amen.